guys. Welcome to Slash Report. I'm Prue, and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime, MK. Hello. Hey. It's already been a super successful episode. Yeah. We've, we've only been, like, doing some pre-recording for, like, five minutes, and already I'm full of shame. Yeah. Well, you guys will find out why, inevitably. Um, so this week, we are going to start our podcast conversation with some sad news, which I think most of you have already heard. Then we'll talk a little bit about some equally potentially sad news, which is the Mentalist series finale. Um, I'll chat a little bit about Empire, and then we'll reserve the bulk of our discussion for a quick drop-in from Waldorf to talk a little bit about Theory of Thickgate, um, and then we'll wrap it up with your questions. Um, but to move on to the sad news, MK. Yeah, I MK. I was at work and I found out that Leonard Nimoy had passed, and it's just it's really upsetting. It felt really fast, too, in a strange way, because I think that we had all heard that he had, um, he was ill, like, that he was sick, and I, I, for some reason, like, didn't associate the fact that he was 83 in my head. For some reason, he just felt, like, eternal, right? Like, yeah, like locked in really, amber. I didn't believe that Leonard Nimoy could, could die. Yeah. I, I don't know. And he just had such a huge impact on so much of our media. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that he always, you know, and I wasn't a Trek fan growing up, and I didn't really discover the franchise until, you know, with the reboot in 2009. But what I really enjoyed about him was the grace and gratitude that he always had toward fandom. Like, he really recognized how hugely important the character of Spock was to people, um, and he like never took that for granted. And unlike a lot of people who end up having massive fan bases, I don't think that he ever, you know, felt, I don't think that he ever expressed like any sort of genuine loathing or like dislike for that. I think he was always, even when he was like waffling sometimes, I think that he recognized like what an honor it was that people took this much from him. Yeah, absolutely. He was really, you know, like a role model, I think, for other people in similar situations. It's also been such an interesting, tremendous, like, couple of days with um, all the sort of tributes that are going out. Like, so the first day, obviously, after we had learned that he had passed, it was, you know, solemn sadness. But then the second day was kind of wonderful, you know? Like, you can only hope that after you die, people have a similar reaction where everywhere you look, it is memorials of you, but memorials of you in kind of, like, the most delightful way. Like, people sharing stories of how you touched their lives and, like, all of those great posts from the NASA scientists and from, like, the space, um, from the space station. Yeah. Of people doing the tall. It's so wonderful. It's really wonderful. And, I mean, the thing that I tweeted was, like, just wonderful Spock quotes against, like, mm-hmm. backdrops of space. And I was like, you know, Leonard Nimoy said amazing things and Spock said amazing things. And for me, the two are inextricable. Absolutely. I, it was so funny, too, because Mayor came over last night, and um, we watched The Wrath of Khan, which were idiots. I feel like everyone oh, last no. night was, like, sitting around watching Wrath of Khan on Netflix, like, hitting the crap out of that file. And as we were, like, crying, we were sitting there saying, like, even, just imagine if, like, Spock was your teacher, how, like, lovely and soothing that would be. Like, oh. so delightful. Like, I was so, like, watching that. It sort of um, reminded me of, like, his particular take on that character and how wonderful it was, right? How peaceful and grateful that his version of Spock is for his, like, dual identity and how it sort of reminds you that, you know, the universe is full of wonder and being curious is great. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I could have possibly put it better. Yeah. He was lovely. We, he shall be missed. Live long and prosper. Indeed. Uh, you know what won't be missed, possibly? <laughs> the fucking mentalist? I don't, like, I literally can't even... So, I have not watched this show in... ever. So, like, I, I went through a brief period where I watched maybe, like, the first season of it during one of my, like, low-down phases when all I can stand is, like, watching shitty procedurals. Yep. But the show, like, I don't actually like it that much, so, like, after I got out of that mood, I, like, left it behind. But you apparently stayed on that shit train. And, um, the series wrapped up, so you had, like, a semi-mental breakdown at us in group chat, and no one knew what you were talking about. So I think that you need to, like, actually take us through this. Okay, so the first thing is I need to give you guys, like, a mini background of, like, three key parts of The Mentalist. 
Please do. So in case you, you know, lived better than me and didn't watch all of The Mentalist or maybe any of it, Patrick Jane is a guy who pretends to be psychic and, you know, goes around like being a fake psychic and getting paid really well for it. And before the pilot goes on TV and comments on a serial killer and like pretends that he can like get messages from the spirit world about him. Uh, and the serial killer is named Red John. And uh, to repay him because he knows he's a fake psychic, Red John murders his family. And then seems Pat- legit. Seems legit. And then Patrick Jane basically like makes it his life's mission to track down and kill Red John by working with the the California Bureau of Investigation. And that's all like fine. They drag it out too long, as you do, because television and they're terrible. Um, and several seasons ago, they had like a natural resolution to the Red John storyline. That was, I would say, one of the best season finales of like any TV show I've ever seen. And then they immediately fucked it up in the next like season opener by being like, that wasn't actually Red John that he murdered in the middle of a food court in front of thousands of witnesses. Eventually, they wrap that up. Great. Everybody starts working for the FBI. And then all of a sudden, everything on The Mentalist starts happening real fast. <laughs> what season is this? Uh, I think this was, like, season six. Like, but you, it almost felt like this last season was, like, three seasons rolled into one. Good. Like, that's a real bad sign. So, recently, there was an episode where I was pretty upset because they had introduced this, like young woman who joins the team um, and is, like, working really hard, and you're like, I really like this character. And then she's brutally murdered on the job, like, in front of Cho, everyone's favorite character. (laughs) And Cho feels like it's his fault that this happened. And you're like, why would they kill her? There was literally no reason for it. And what they did is they had Jane be like, I can't be with the woman I love because she works for the FBI, and this other lady, who I, like, barely know, was killed on the job, which means that she could be killed on the job, so, like, maybe I should run away. (laughs) Seems extra legit. Right? Uh, Which, like, it makes no sense, but he runs away. They have the cops arrest him and bring him back to the FBI to be like, P.S., uh... You've committed so many crimes, and, like, we own you. You have to keep solving cases with us. And also, like, your girlfriend wants you back. And an episode later, he's like, you know what? You're right. That's the correct thing to do. And just carries on as though nothing has happened. So this is already quality. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Wait, wait. Girlfriend, does that mean he's dating the lady? Yeah. Yeah, they get together. All right. It, it gets, I thought that was like the one thing they weren't going to do because he was too busy being dead inside from his dead family, but okay. Apparently once he actually killed Red John, he was like fine with the murder of his family. His, his penis was ready? Yeah, his it penis was like prime. good? Yeah. That's how that works, apparently. Sorry. Yeah, no, this is like ultra terrible. Um, then they introduce a serial killer, and I'm like, god damn, I love serial killers, like, 100%, I'll watch this. Except that it's, like, the worst written serial killer I've ever seen. Like, they're like, we found a body, and then they're like, no, wait, it turns out we found, like, 12 bodies because of another fake psychic. And this fake psychic is then murdered by the serial killer and, like, has the word fake carved into his arm because this serial killer also can identify who is and is not psychic. So, obviously, what they have Jane do is, like, go on TV shows and radio, again, pretending to be psychic, to, like, say a bunch of shit about this serial killer and be like, fingers crossed that the serial killer doesn't, like, murder his girlfriend. Even though that's literally how the show starts. Sweet. Sweet, right? Luckily, instead of, like, murdering Lisbon, uh, the serial killer kidnaps Jane and, like, ties him up in a basement. (laughs) Jane uses his fake psychic abilities to, like, pull one over on the dude, blow him up, okay? Like, blows him up in an explosion that he's also in. But Jane survives, and they're like, but probably the serial killer was, like, destroyed. And at this point, I'm like, this episode is real long. Like, I'm like, I've been watching this for a while, and it almost feels 
like a season finale, but like I'm not really sure what's happening here. And then I like check the file time and there's still an hour left. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this is this is a two-parter that they like smooshed together. I, I got that. Okay. How could this possibly keep going? It turns out that the serial killer has escaped without the FBI noticing, even though they have the place like surrounded and it's like full of forensic techs. He makes his way through Austin, brutally, like, bleeding and burned and shit, and nobody calls that in. Uh, Jane and Lisbon have decided, because he just got blown up, that they should get married immediately. And they're gonna have the wedding in their, like, boss's backyard. Wait, they get married? Spontaneously? Okay. Jane accepts a secret, like, psychic message from fake psychic dude, who is like, the number three is really important to you, decides to buy a shack. Sits outside the shack, pulls off his wedding ring, because Lisbon's been like, are you ever going to take that wedding ring off? And then hands it to Lisbon and is like, will you marry me? And they're like, we should get married in two days. I feel like the more you describe this, though, I feel like I'm getting really strong flashes to the 200th episode of Stargate. But that 200th episode was like a series of parody shorts. And yet this was like a thing that they really decided to do. Okay, wait, here's the thing. I looked this up afterwards because I was like, this whole thing is such a hot fucking mess. And an executive producer actually said, most of the series finale wasn't really planned out like that from the beginning. No. <laughs> Don't say. <laughs> because it's like, you're watching it, you're like, somebody just kept writing shit and then they filmed it. Like, nobody edited this. Nobody was like, does this make sense? Like, they just, like, kept throwing shit at the page until they had two hours of content. So it's not over yet. Because the serial killer, after, like, escaping the FBI who think he's dead, finds out that they're getting married and decides to, like, crash their wedding in order to murder Jane. Oh, and the serial killer was also, by the way, draining blood from the bodies, which they only find out, like, super late so that he could pump it into the dead body of his also-a-serial-killer father to, like, revive his spirit with witchcraft. <laughs> I'm not joking. This is, like, all shit that happened in two hours. Okay. Anyways, Jane figures out, because, like, nobody at the FBI wants to tell him when they find out that the serial killer is still alive and probably hunting him, they're like, we don't want to ruin his wedding. But Jane obviously figures that out, tells Lisbon, and is like, we should elope. We'll just tell the justice of the peace, like, where to meet us, and we'll just, like, get married without all this bullshit happening. Except that the serial killer is in the trunk of the justice of the peace's car, and their wedding is going to be at, like, the weird shack that Jane bought, like, two days ago. It doesn't even have electricity or, like, a lock. It's just a shack. I feel like Lisbon should just, like, be like, I, we tried. This isn't going to work. <laughs> we, we tried. I'm real sorry. Um... Except that, obviously, somehow, for some reason, it's really unclear how they ever planned this. Everybody else is, like, in on this, and so they, like, lure the serial killer into the shack. Everybody's in their wedding gear. They arrest him, and then they carry on having the wedding. And at the very last minute, like, after they've been married, Lisbon's like, by the way, I'm pregnant. And that's the end of the series. What? Yeah, also, Cho is their boss now. That's the only cool part. Literally, there's like 30 seconds left, and she's like, yeah, I'm pregnant. The end. This reads like such bad fic. It's worse than bad fic. That's tremendous. Yeah, like I can't, like, there was no way for me to explain that to you without like literally just telling you everything that happened because it was such a shit show. Did they, so here's my question. You know how, like, sometimes shows, like, remember how Bones during the writer's strike season, like, had a horrible, like, like the worst season of Bones from which I don't think the show ever truly recovered? Yeah. Because, like, it was just so awful and I'm so angry still about it? Yes. Like, do you think this was the case with The Mentalist? Like, did they get cut off at, like, an abbreviated number of episodes? Like, was there a reason that this went so cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? Um, apparently when they, sorry, I got the number wrong. This was actually season seven, but at the, apparently at the end of season six, they pretty much knew they had, like, one season left. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't explain, like, 
I, if you have one season left, wouldn't you try to make it good instead of terrible? Because, like, literally nothing happened up until the last three episodes, and then everything happened. That is so strange. Like, if you know you're probably, it's your last season, but you have a full season to work with, I would, that would be, like, a blessing, right? Because you have enough time to really, like, craft something that has, a, like, it has an end where you don't have to, like... Like, if they... Some sort of cliffhanger for next season. Right? Like, if they had introduced the serial killer at the beginning of season seven and, like, worked that all through, because, like, literally they know nothing about the serial killer, and then they're like, oh my god, he's draining blood. It must be witchcraft. <laughs> like, there's there's no... N- there's nothing there. I've written better <laughs> murder mysteries for fan fiction. I... Wow. Yeah. That's, like, really bad. Like, you said it was bad, but I had no concept. Like, I thought it was just, like, regular bad. That's extra. No, this is, like, this is, like, intense. I don't know how they, like, award for worst season finale or series finale might go to The Mentalist. That's, like, that's impressive, man. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so pivoting from something terrible. Actually, wait, no, there was a question that we received. Oh, that's right. Um, via our Tumblr, and we typically do questions at the end, but we figured this one was thematically on point, and Anon asked, on a scale of leverage, which was tremendous, to How I Met Your Mother, which was not, how terrible was the finale of The Mentalist? And also, who am I supposed to be shipping Agent Cho with besides myself? You should be shipping Agent Cho with me. Oh, that's the other thing. So, there's, like, a young, blonde dude who, like, is working with them and isn't sure if he's ready to go into the field. And he's in love with that girl agent who gets, like, murdered for no reason. Mm-hmm. And then literally two episodes later, he's, like, talking to Cho about, like, maybe I'm not ready for the field, whatever. And Cho smacks him upside the head, like, NCIS style, gives him a stern talking to. And he's like, you're right, I should go into the field. But if I don't, are you going to hit me again? And Cho just gives them a look, and then they start smiling at each other cutely, and then it, like, moves on to serial killers again. So your brain immediately went, let's watch Cho put some soap in a bag. Like, basically, I was like, am I supposed to be (laughs) shipping this? I was like, is this, is this what I'm meant to be feeling? Or has fandom ruined me? No, you're just broken, because Agent Cho and me have a destined love. I mean, I think Agent Cho and me would be a great pairing as well. I think that Agent Cho plus you, all of our listeners, would be a great pairing. Agent Cho plus everybody would be a great pairing, because Agent Cho is a great taste that goes great with everything. Agent Cho is literally the best thing about this show, other than, like, two episodes, the pilot, the one where you think Jane has killed Red John, and Jane's hair for the first four seasons. Do you know what? I remember briefly from when I was watching The Mentalist that I was convinced, I had somehow managed to convince myself that, you know how Cho is like always reading while he's on stakeout? Yeah. I've convinced myself that Cho reads romance novels. Oh my god, me too. I like have no idea where that came from, and I don't think that I ever really saw a book cover, and this is probably not accurate, but like somewhere in my head, like I've created a canon where Cho just sits there and reads like shitty my, like, lost to Laird, like, Highland Scotsman yes. romance novels, or, like, my lost to Duke of Wyndham, like, all the really bad garbage stuff. Pregnesia. No, no one reads Pregnesia. <laughs> you have it. You own a copy. It was thrust upon me. Just, I like, greatness? <laughs> she gave it to me in a Williams-Sonoma. That place will never be clean again. Thrust upon you like greatness, just as it has been thrust upon Cho. anyways i agree with you that's like 100 percent what he's reading and nobody can convince me otherwise right but on a scale from leverage to how i met your mother where do you think that falls uh you know what i'm gonna say it is like a hair shy of how i met your mother and my argument would be at least people were like there's a reason that jane and lisbon would get together Versus, there's no reason that Robin Scherbatsky should settle for Ted, the worst part of that entire show. Right? I was yeah. so, con- like, I stopped watching How I Met Your Mother ages ago, but when I found out that Robin and, and a Barney were together, I was thrilled. Yeah. Um, don't understand why they got married. Neither of them seemed like the marrying type, but whatever. But then someone was like, oh yeah, they got divorced, um, and uh, she got back together with Ted, and I was like, oh cool, you've betrayed the entire premise of your series. Right? 
And, like, uh, Robin and Barney are perfect for each other. Like, they probably shouldn't be married, but they should be together forever. Versus, like, if you can fast forward through, like, 99% of Ted in that show, you're watching a far better show. Also, like, I think that hasn't everyone in fandom in the world on every sentient universe known that Robin and Barney were, like, destined for one another, not within the confines of, like, traditional heteronormative marriage, since the moment that they, like, smoked cigars in gorgeous suits. After together, playing after laser playing, tag? like, paintball? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Those two are soulmates. They, I felt weirdly betrayed, because, like, I've always, like, overly identified with, like, Barney, and I was like, oh, one day I'll find my Robin. Can I just say that's terrible, because I have always over-identified with Robin, Oh my god, MK, does that mean we have to, like, wear suits and smoke cigars after playing paintball? I'm really terrible at paintball, I'm just gonna tell you that straight up. Okay, so you can't be on my team because no losers are on my team. Yeah. But, you know, Robin's, like, family situation? Think about that. <laughs> that is literally my family situation. MK, does this mean that you are a secret teenage Canadian pop star? Please tell me you have a single where you dance on the beach. No comment. <sighs> god. Okay, um, moving on from this. I'm sorry that the Mentals finale happened to you, MK. That's, yeah, somebody had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> somebody had to take one for the team. I know. But let, turning to more happy news, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Fox's new mega-hit Empire. Uh, I don't think, MK, you're not watching it, right? No, I wanted to hear what other people thought first. Definitely. Um, so, Empire, in case you guys have missed the blitz of advertising and marketing all over the place, is um, a show helmed by Terrence Howard, I know, and but also with Taraji P. Henson, who is amazing on this show. And the premise is, essentially, that our first episode starts with Taraji P. Henson's character, who's named Cookie, I don't know either, Okay. Um, getting out of jail after 17 years in the big house for dealing drugs. Um, and she's come back with a purpose because 17 years ago, she took the fall for her husband, Terrence Howard, uh, and went to prison so that he could stay on the outside, raise their three sons, and keep working toward their dream of a music empire. And when she leaves prison, she finds, well, she doesn't find, she probably knows this throughout, you know, her incarceration, but that he has built a literal empire. He's like the head of a multi-billion dollar music industry business. And their three sons have grown up. Um, And this is a show sort of about the dynastic struggles within that family and the crazy um, relationships and uh, interpersonal disasters that happen within this group and they're sort of attaches of humans this show is completely bonkers i have to say that um the closest parallel i can think of in terms of the twists turns are going to be uh it feels very dynasty like but it's also very shonda rhymes so like every episode you're like what the fuck and um but it's all done within this like very crazy like king lear (laughs) setup um and it's also like such an interesting show and i think the thing that really bears pointing out is that it's a show where every major cast member is african-american um it's so cool it's so beautifully shot it has gorgeous music in it and i like almost all of the actors and you, and even the ones that you like, even the characters you really hate, it's really fun to hate them. So it's it's completely delightful. And if you like Taraji P. Henson, you absolutely must watch this show. Between her earrings and her wigs and her clothes, oh my god, it is like a spiritual experience watching this woman. I think I was um, I was catching up with it on demand earlier today. And I was tweeting about how, like, every man on this show who is not a blood relative of Cookie, every time she walks into a room, she they look completely torn between terror and arousal, and it's just <laughs> as it should be. Um, so part of the reason the show is also really interesting is uh, the executive producers, I think it's the executive producers, are Lee Daniels, who did Precious and The Butler, um, and uh, Timbaland does all the music on the show. Nice. 
yeah, and so they actually have very genuinely talented artists on the series. Um, and the three sons, two of them are rappers and R&B artists. And so the three children that she did not see grow up because she was in prison are Andre, her eldest son, who went to like Ivy Leagues and got a business degree, um, married a white lady, and has something really wrong with him. So we've dis- we've discovered that he has bipolar disorder, but what's actually wrong with him is that he's like starting to deliberately not take his medication. Oh, good. Yeah, so he's like he's spiraling a little bit, and he has always felt othered from the family. Then we've got the middle son, Jamal, who is the actual musical genius of the family, and who we find out is openly gay to his family, but uh, has been prevented from his father from coming out more widely with his musical career, and is basically just shunned by their dad because he is the gay son, and his father cannot handle that. Of course. And then you have the youngest son, Hakeem, who is a little shit. I hate that kid so much. And it must be said that, like, that kid is a great actor to inspire in me such hatred that reflexively, every time I see his dumb face and his, like, weird eyebrows with a pattern shaped into them, that I just reflexively say, I fucking hate you at my television. It's amazing. Um, And each of these characters is, like, so interesting and textured and, like, the most recent episode uh, had a big... Well, you know what? I'm not going to ruin it for you guys. But every episode has, like, great set pieces, fantastic music, really cool costumes, and one of the first moments that Taraji P. Henson sees her sons after getting out of prison for the first time in 17 years is when Hakeem mouths off at her and calls her a bitch, and she literally picks up a broom and beats his ass. And it is, like, one of those great television moments where I'm like, God, thank you for letting me live in a world where this can happen. Congratulations. Live your best life. I know. My one request for everyone out there is if you are also watching Empire, A, come talk to me about it because, like, I need to talk to people about it. And B, if you know of any good podcasts, like after show podcasts talking about Empire, please let me know because I was trying to listen to the After Buzz um, podcast on Empire, but there is, like, one person on there who drives me completely loco and I can't I can't listen to it so I need an alternative uh and I can't seem to find any so if you guys know of a good podcast discussing empire or you guys are like inspired to create one please oh god give it to me I need it in my life congratulations I know I know it's so good I really recommend everyone giving it a shot at least try the pilot it's really excellent okay so with that said it moves us on to our next topic Um, our big one for the week, which was about, uh, I guess what Waldorf nicknamed it was Theory of Thickgate, which um, we will throw to her to describe in more detail. Hey, Waldorf. Hi. So, uh, it's certainly been a week. Yeah, yeah, it's been a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) How to to even explain the incidences of this week? Do you want to for those of you who have somehow missed this entire kerfuffle, Waldorf, do you want to give a really quick recap? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so early, oh, I guess it's last week now, um, I started receiving comments on a story that I wrote that is very, um, it's for a very small pairing in Star Trek fandom. It didn't get a lot of attention. I never expected it to. It's kind of a rare pair. Um, but I started getting comments on it all of a sudden. And when you start getting comments like that, you kind of go, okay, you know, who wrecked it? Mm-hmm. Um, but the comments were weird. They were like um, people who had never, who weren't exposed to Star Trek fandom. And they like were making a point to be very critical um, in a way that was just completely offbeat from even comments that you usually get from Spanish people about like, hey, you had spelling errors, um, you know, this, you know, didn't actually end up working. You know, sometimes when I post things, I'm kind of notorious for missing entire paragraphs mm-hmm. when I copy paste. So, but they weren't things like that. It was kind of nitpicky and just the tone was very very off right and i think Um, that a couple of them started off with i'm not like i haven't seen into darkness or like i'm not into into darkness but not even into darkness it was just i haven't seen star trek (laughs) 
like the entire canon of Star Trek from TOS to Next Generation to the reboots. Right. It wasn't even one movie. It was the whole thing. I've never seen this before, but let me tell you how I feel about your fic. And that particular fic really relied heavily on, you know, that you were very, very familiar with the reboot, um, the 2009 reboot. Uh, it just basically is a retelling of that one um, with one major change. So that was kind of weird. And I was talking to Screamlet and Lepicus about it, you know, emailing them back and forth and being like, I don't know if I'm being trolled. Has anybody seen a wreck? What is going on? Um, I made a post on Tumblr basically being like, hey, guys, let's think about concrete. And, and, you know, if somebody's not soliciting it, maybe don't do it. Not um, maybe don't. Just don't, guys. Just don't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I there's a way to point out spelling errors, and God knows that people do that for me sometimes. Um, and there's a way to do it, but, like, rule of thumb, don't do it. Yeah. Uh, um, so I posted that, and we still didn't really know what was going on. And then Sunday, um, I got, or I guess it was Saturday night, I got a flame just out and out ridiculousness. Um, and somebody posted under that flaming comment saying that they were a teacher at Berkeley and that the flamer was not part of their course, but that kind of there was a class going on and that was where the influx of comments were coming from. So with that information in mind, I did a little bit of digging on my own because, you know, I wanted to know what the hell was going on. Um, I found the course website and, uh, read the syllabus and realized that it wasn't just me who was going to be getting these. There was a whole series of other authors who were going to be going through this, you know, and the thing about it for me was I had tried to engage at least one of those students and being like, Hey, your tone is really off. You know, you say you're not trying to be rude, but you are being really rude. Like I'm going to assume that you have good intentions. Here's how maybe you could adjust your tone. We kind of had a dialogue that I wouldn't have had. Mm -hmm. Had I known that it was a class. Right. So I, you know, read the syllabus, read who was coming up, and basically um, Sunday morning, with Screenlet's help, uh, tracked down the other authors and sent them all uh, messages, you know, on their fix or tumblers or emails or whatever, basically saying, hey, here's what's going on. You're about to get an influx of comments from a class if you want to have an idea of what you're in for here's the story that they commented on me um you know just to give you a heads up you can decide what to do with this information i just didn't want to get you know i didn't want anybody else to be blindsided by this right um i also emailed the teachers whose information was on the syllabus and said you know here's my experience of this i didn't feel confident you know at length but you know, this is, these are my feelings, and heads up, I'm letting all of the other authors know. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I made a Tumblr post um, about just what kind of was going on. Um, I tried to be very just, here are the facts, because what I really was worried about was the fact that I'm pretty thick-skinned. Not a lot really bugs me all that much. Um, right. I was kind of bemused by this, but... Not everyone um, has but that I know reaction. That we have members of fandom. Yeah, right, right. Some people, you know, are don't have that, you know, that mindset going in, and you know, this is something that we do for ourselves and for our friends, and, and nobody's getting paid for it. So I wanted to make sure that the message got out, and that you know, people were getting kind of an influx of love on the fix that were going to be targeted um, to kind of help counteract that. And that was Sunday around four o'clock. And then it kind of blew up. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's, it's I, been, I have oh, to say are. that I was really surprised too by sort of like the pace that it, I, I mean, I shouldn't be, but I was really surprised by both the pace that it got and as well as the level of anger in the responses by fandom. So, I mean, like, uh, to be completely upfront, like, I was one of the first people who probably reblogged that damn thing and was like, everyone, please pay attention because I... You and I have been talking about it. Yeah, we've been talking it. about it. And also, I feel really strongly about... There's, there's a sort of... Um, there's a sort of simmering debate 
right now about the whole concept of like fanish spaces, right? And I'm definitely a person who has never really bought into the idea that fandom is a quote unquote safe space, not because I don't think that it should be, but just because I don't think that it's like a practical reality. Like even if we like we barricaded ourselves in here and never let anyone who didn't pass like a 10 point fandom test into our little community, it still wouldn't prevent, you know, something that people found upsetting from happening in fandom, right? Like we inflict ourselves with our biggest wounds for the most part. Um, But I feel really strongly about these external incursions in because it feels a lot like, what was, there was someone who used this really great metaphor. It's like, it feels like people going to the zoo to gawk. And I have really strong feelings against that. Yeah, and I think that there's, it's one thing if you're going to the zoo to gawk and you're just looking at it and then holding your own conversation, but the particular reason this ticked me off was the fact that not only were these people being asked to, like, go into fandoms, which they clearly knew nothing about, um, they were being asked to directly engage with the authors, which is absurd on every single level, and Part of the reason that this blew up last night is in addition to the Tumblr, like, blow up, I think our Twitter accounts were blowing up, too, as we were tweeting out information, and I was just retweeting information, and Slash, I, like, had a bunch of information going out through Slash Report as well, and I ended up getting rolled up into this conversation with a couple of academics about, you know, the nature of fandom and the nature of academic study of fandom. And I, it really highlighted this, um, this sort of deep misunderstanding of the study of fandom and the people who particip- most ACAFEN seem to have, or at least the one that I was talking to. And I'm, like, not going to say any names in particular here. It's going to be really easy to figure out. But I, kept, I, felt, I felt like I kept having this recursive argument with her where she was like, yeah, but you can't assume that fandom is a safe space. And I was like, that's never been the argument that I was making. The argument that I'm making here is that, no, fandom's not a space, safe space. And yes, obviously you can do this. Like, you can have people come in and do this because in order for it to be public to other fen, it has to be public to everyone. But... I mean, you have to recognize that this is like a dick move. And this also has smacks of a lot of... It, it's because Spanish studies seems to fall into two categories. You're either looking at it from like an anthropological point of view, where you're studying the community in and of itself, or you're studying the community output, which is fanfic, which tends to fall into the purview of literature. And I feel like the people who come from the lit background have no fucking idea what they're doing when it comes to dealing with the community aspect. And I think this is where the major run-in was, right? Because if they were just looking at the fanfic in their class, no one would have cared, right? Like, remember when you just told me that you were on someone's syllabus and I laughed because who hasn't been on someone's syllabus at this point, right? right? Like, we're all on someone's syllabus. I'm in a book. It's horrifying. I try not to think about it a lot. (laughs) Like, but the fact that they're telling people to comment is the part where it's like, that is not okay. That is not okay. Right. And I mean, I should say also that this isn't my first go around with something like this either. You know, yeah. like, wait, the fact that it was, you know, they were being instructed to, to interact was the part where it kind of was like, okay. And a lot of the debate that I've seen kind of roll out. And um, this is where I miss LJ just so, so much. much. Um, because I basically gave blanket permission um, for people to use the comment section of uh, my fic as a discussion space, um, which has worked out, you know, for people pretty well, I think, but you know, God, I miss LJ. But part of the conversation that's been happening, um, in the comments section is about whether or not they should have asked permission essentially to use our fix. And, um, a lot of academics have been saying, you know, I don't tend to ask permission, but I never encourage people to comment, you know, if they enjoyed a story, you know, they're welcome to, but it's never part of the assignment. Um, and my feeling on this was that they didn't have to ask permission because once you post something, it's out there. Um, and you kind of just have to roll with that, but having a heads up on hey, you're going to be getting this type of comment, you know, it's for a class, 
would have just changed the entire way I dealt with the whole thing and would have just made my week be like, okay, these guys are from the class. They need to get their participation grade. That's fine. I'll just, you know, I won't waste any of my time being like, what is going on? Where are these people coming from? Right. But I think that that's also like, that's also a symptom of that thing I was talking about just now, right? About the difference between the anthropological point of view on fandom and the literary critique point of view on fandom, right? Like if you are looking at it from like a literary critique point of view, like of course you don't need to get permission for something that's publicly out there to be critiqued, right? Like I never had to go dig up the dead corpse of Joseph Conrad so that I could get permission to talk about how heart of darkness is a sack of flaming shit garbage, (laughs) um, which it is. And everyone who disagrees with me is wrong. Um, I hate so that book so here. much. Like, if I had a time machine, I've said this a lot, and I stand by it. If I had a time machine and I could only use it once, I would literally go back in time and kick him in the penis <laughs> until he couldn't write that book. Not Hitler. Not Hitler. I mean, let's, let's you know, I mean, we, we all can do our part, and that's the gift that I have for history, <laughs> is kicking Joseph Conrad in the nuts. But... No, like, to my original non-nut-kicking point, it's like, yeah, from, like, a literary criticism perspective, like, obviously it's irrelevant. And this was part of the discussion last night. I'm like, I, you know, like, I am definitely a major supporter of the whole idea of the author is dead, right? Like, intent is sort of irrelevant when it comes to the end result of the story because everyone brings their own baggage and their own experiences into every reading. And no person's experience of any given piece of literature or text is the same as another's, you know, it's an intertextual experience every time. So obviously, you know, you can't, it's like posted in public space. You don't need to ask permission to do that. But at the same time, when you look at the way anthropologists study communities, it is never okay to do what was done in this case, right? Like you can study the communities, but you have to go through very strict ethics trainings. They're very strict rules about how you interact with communities so that you don't disrupt them or disrupt them as little as possible. And there are major ethical concerns in academia when it comes to anthropologically studying communities. And I feel like because this was, this was actually like an anthropological act, but done within like a literary criticism context is where this major fuck up comes from. And I just don't, I like, and the part where people don't seem to be grasping that is the part that like weirds me out. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to add like more information came in, you know, throughout the day on Sunday. Absolutely. So fast that it was really hard to keep up with it at times. And, you know, um, but what we found is this is a decal class, which I'm assuming I'm saying that right. Um, but it's through Berkeley, but it's basically student-run. Um, there's, like, a professor who has to sign off on it who's, like, a faculty advisor. Um, but it's student-run, and the students involved had to express an interest in fandom. And from the ones we've heard from, um, they all profess to have had, you know, upwards of five years of experience within fandom. Um, certainly the class runners have been identified as fanish and participants within fandom, um, which I think made people a little bit more edgy about it, because I think that we're kind of used to incursions on our space from outsiders doing the rubbernecking, yes. or, you know, the, oh, look at those, the fan in its wild habitat, look what, right, smut. Um, but these were, you know, all people doing that to us. Yeah. And that's the, and as that information came in, instead of kind of calming people down it seemed to rile them back up because i think that nobody really expected it to have come from that direction right like the call is coming from inside the house yeah i also i mean like i have to say i think that we talked about this like yesterday and we talked about a little more today how even though the discussion is that these the people who are running and we have to say that this decal course is not like a regular Berkeley course. It's a student run course. So the two people who are operating this class are, are undergrads at this university. And presumably they have some sort of like advisor who's looking over their syllabus, probably not very well given the outcome of this entire situation. So, I mean, that right. th- that leads to the other thing that we'll talk about shortly. But 
the fact that they're saying that they're fans and that they did this is kind of really surprising to me because I cannot imagine that I would have ever thought this was an appropriate action to take as a fan. And I, you know, like subtract 20 year, 20 years, subtract 10 years off my age. And I still wouldn't have thought that it was an appropriate thing to do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, as a junior or so, like yeah, even no, in college, my knee jerk reaction was like fucking Fight Club, this shit, right? Like we don't talk about Fight Club. Absolutely. And but then again, Waldorf, is this because we are olds? Like, are we from a different like Spanish generation? Like, is it? Do we have that instinctive like no curl into okay. a ball reaction because we're old? I don't know. My instinct would have been to agree with you, but because so much of this is happening in my fanish space, mm-hmm. you know, I'm getting all the alerts on my dash and, and, you know, in my comments, I don't think it is. I think it's everybody's knee-jerk reaction okay. to just be like, don't talk about this. Don't, don't do that. What are, you, what are you doing? Don't do that. Um, it seems to be pretty across the board. The aspects that they, you know, are taking issue with kind of vary beyond, you know, like they should have asked permission, they should have not commented, they should have known better. Um, but the general consensus seems to be, you know, that it was not appropriate. Yeah. And I, I mean, so this kind of leads us to the last part of this where inevitably because the internet can never like throttle something back appropriately we went from being righteously like upset about this and trying to get the information out so that the authors who were on the list could take appropriate reactions whatever those may be right like maybe you don't care maybe you're really nervous about this and you want to hide your story for now like we just wanted people to know so that they could like do whatever they felt they needed to do um but like of course of course, of course, people went overboard, yeah. and it went from a situation where I think that initially there was some like interesting, good, like understandably frustrated and angry discussion going on to like complete dogpile within six hours. It was yeah, it was nuts. I think that the initial post went up sometime around four thirty, five o'clock. By eleven o'clock, we had an incident of doxing. Good, um, good, which good, for good. Those of you who don't know is basically somebody went and found uh one of the students linkedin facebook um i don't even remember what a couple of the other links were to um and posted it right in the uh, comment section for everybody to see basically with a here how do you like it it's not so fun when it's in your house kind of comment um luckily it happened in the comment section so i could delete it pretty much as soon as i saw it um But then we also had a couple of members uh, of the Tumblr community um, taking steps to dox both of the instructors. And um, one of the instructors, um, as soon as I got flamed, stepped in and, you know, was the one who said, hey, I'm from Berkeley, I'm teaching a class. Um, She was the one, she participated with her Vanish name Mm -hmm. uh, that linked back to her AO3 account where she had written a couple of stories. Um, I think about five were posted there. She's more from uh, fanfic.net. She posted uh, at least one response in the comment section, trying to kind of explain what was going on, where they were coming from, um, and ultimately ended up deleting her AO3 account and orphaning her works. Um, Which is unfortunate. Which was unfortunate was, you know, people were not only commenting in the comment section of my fic, they went to her fix and started dogpiling there as well. So, that was unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, again, this kind of makes me think in a weird way that if only this was, we were still a live journal-based community, at least, like, the conversation could have continued And maybe this person wouldn't have felt compelled to delete because at least it wouldn't be, like, in her stories. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because there's no way to, like, actively – there's no way to, like, have a constructive conversation over Tumblr, which I assume is, like, her primary medium of communication in fanfic. No. In fact, her primary uh, communication was through fanfic.net. She actually requested that people communicate with her through that. Um, 
which I think anybody could have told her was not going to happen. Um, yeah. The, the, the fandom <laughs> I mean, community that I she's I... interacting with uh, primarily lives on Tumblr and by extension the AO3, but um, I ended up being able to sign in to fanfic.net with a Google account. Um, but that was only because I was trying to alert another author whose work happened to be posted over there. Mm-hmm. Um, hell or high water could not have convinced me to do it otherwise. Yeah, you know what? I actually, now that you think about it, I think that a couple of other people made that comment. Like, yeah, we're not going to fanfiction.net. <laughs> literally, literally, it is in there. People are like... Yeah, I was going to PM you as you had requested, except that you only gave us fanfic.net. I wonder if that's the cultural difference then. It might be. It might be. It might be. Although, I mean, I like we are so ill-equipped to talk about what the mores are at fanfic.net. That's just, I. it's one thing, it's like I completely missed that. I never posted a single damn thing at oh. ff.net. I never really read a single damn thing at ff.net. Like, whenever I've wrecked anything from ff.net, it always has, like, a mean caveat that I can't stop myself in front of it that's like, <laughs> sorry, this is at ff.net, and not anywhere else on the internet is more palatable to read on, but... Yeah, 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 I just totally have no idea how... I know, we are we are strangers there. in a strange land there, and we are yeah. wary. Which, I mean, might have been part of the problem if we feel that, you know way about them maybe it was just a fundamental misunderstanding of this side of the divide i don't know not <laughs> expect this to kind of take off in the way that it did you know I, obviously my intention was not for that to happen right uh, in quite that way i never meant for anybody to have to delete their account obviously i feel that this is just the beginning because people have already like aca fandom is already a thing and i think that as the years progress and as fandom gets a more and more of a mainstream place in the pop cultural discussion, this sort of thing is going to happen more and more. And I saw part of the discussion over the course of last night was what can we do to protect ourselves, right? Like, can we just lock to AO3? Can we ban anonymous commenting? And I think this was a case where it became really obvious that, like, that is not sufficient, right? Because the students had been asked to create AO3 accounts in order to comment, which was, like, that was the part where, like, I was officially really frustrated because locking to AO3 should work. That should be a way that you can protect yourself, which I know is, like, not necessarily true because obviously anyone who applies for one can get an AO3 account, but it felt like a betrayal that they had taken our own systems out of our hands. Right, because it feels like anybody who applies for an AO3 account and wants one wants to participate in fandom in a genuine way. They're not coming at it from a different direction. You know, they are... uh, of us, for lack of a better term. And so it's kind of blindsiding to, you know, realize, okay, that's not going to help me. And then, you know, a couple of the authors who got back to me were genuinely considering um, deleting. Yeah. Which is so unfair, not only to them, but, you know, to fandom at large. You know, and caveat, guys, if you like a fic, download it keep a hard (laughs) copy of it because it's not going to be there forever um but you know they lose all of the comments the positive experiences that they've had on that fic you know with a deletion um which would suck luckily i don't think anybody actually did it um because by the time you know we woke up this morning uh all of the students had been instructed to stop leaving comments and there was going to be a whole revamp And so this is kind of petered out as a non-issue. But, you know, that that kind of sucks that there's no other alternative than deletion, you know, to keep your things to yourself, you know? Yeah. I I mean, this is definitely like, um, this is definitely like a growing pains period. So we'll see. We'll see. And I, and I truly think that even though the response that we have seen primarily has been, um, in agreement with our own, like, sort of, oh my gosh, no, response, there has to be, like, I feel like this has to be changing, right? Or else this wouldn't have happened. There have to be people who don't necessarily feel strongly about this the way that we do. So, 
I think it's something that we all have to start considering, right? It's something that we need to think about in maybe like a more serious way because if nothing else, I, I don't like being put in that position and I don't know, like everyone's got to do what they've got to do in order to feel safe and comfortable in their space, even if their space is not a safe one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and the fact that, you know, like you said, the call was coming from inside the house. Yeah. You know, this was fans choosing to interact with fandom in this way, you know, in a way that they felt was positive. Um, you know, so, that, yeah. I've got I've got no good answers for you guys. Sorry. Nope, no one's got good answers for anything. All right. Thank you, Waldorf, for coming on and talking to us about this again some more. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right, so that was our discussion on Theory of Fic. Uh, if you have further questions, don't ask us. <laughs> as far as we're concerned, it's over. Yeah. Um, then, MK, you want to close it out with questions? Yeah, let's do some questions. So the first one is from Gaffy Labs, who wants to know if we've ever tried to get into a fandom and watched the wrong anime, movie, series, whatever, by mistake. Um, and, okay, so it wasn't trying to get into a fandom, But my best friend and I have a tradition where every year for Valentine's, we try to sit down and watch either Bad Boys 1 or Bad Boys 2 together. I did not know that you guys did Bad Boys 1 sometimes. I thought it was literally just Bad Boys 2. We try to do Bad Boys 2 only because it is the far superior of the two movies. Naturally. But sometimes we're like, oh, we should watch the first one again. It's been a while and we always regret it, but we still do it. (laughs) It's part of the cycle. Right. Anyway, so one year, uh, we decided, because we didn't own this yet, that we should, uh, we should rent it. And there's, like, this weird indie video store in the annex called Suspect. And we went to Suspect, and the setup in there is kind of terrible. And we rented what we thought was Bad Boys. And it had been a while. Like, we hadn't seen the first one. This had been a few years. So we take it home, we start watching it, and it's like 40 minutes into the movie, and we're like, god damn, when is Will Smith going to appear on screen? Like, literally, he's not in this at all. Uh, It turns out that there is a movie about Portuguese boys who go to prison called (laughs) Bad Boys. (laughs) And that's what we rented, because none of the movies at Suspect have covers on them, just titles. Oh my god. So don't do that. Lord. Yeah. The end. Uh, yeah, because originally I was like, how the fuck would this even happen? Only if you're being an idiot. (laughs) That's really impressive. Yeah. Well, the worst part is, like, literally we were just stuffing our faces and being like, when does Will Smith appear? You would think we would have figured it out earlier. I don't know, like, we must have been really tired. Yeah, because I was going to be like, I think that that would be pretty obvious really early on. (laughs) It's been so long, and all we really remembered was, like, the first one is terrible. Oh, man. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah, let's let's do. Okay, so when Anand says, just listen to your podcast on that Mary Sue article. Thank God fetishization of heterosexuality was normalized so long ago. That movies, TV, and books can keep making everything about a guy and a girl getting together, and they don't get judged. <laughs> She's got a point. She does. She does. Yeah. I mean, I, as we said on the episode about that article, I think it had a lot of flaws. And this is definitely one of the ones that it shows. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. Um, and then this, I think, is probably our last question for the episode. Another Anon asks, what did you guys think about the White Collar series finale? (laughs) So, funny background. Both MK and I failed to watch the White Collar series finale. And I think that at least on my end, it was because I had sort of, like, I hadn't caught up. I basically like watched through the fourth season and then I hadn't caught up with the fifth. Cause I, I just get really busy and there are entire months and sections of my life where I don't watch any television and my DVR gets to like 98% capacity. And I, then I have to like go back um, on vacation and kind of pound through the media. 
Uh, and I had just like made a mental note, like put a pin on it, like go back and watch white collar season five. And then the series finale happened and people sort of went apeshit about some stuff. So I was like super curious and I read the spoilers and I was like, ha ha ha, no about the entire series finale. Um, so for those of you who don't know what happened, essentially it boils down to two major facts that Neil fakes his death in the series finale Peter and Elle and everybody mourns for, like, two years until Neil, like, can't resist stealing something. And then Peter gets a clue from the theft that Neil is alive. And you also find out in the interim, in the two years interim, that he and Elle have had a baby and named him Neil. And I was like, what the actual fuck? (laughs) Like, good job, Neil. Good, good way to fuck that up real... Also, this is, like, a little bit house. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's not the role model that you should be following. No, absolutely not. Um, It's also just, like... And this is, like, a smaller issue related to this. But, like, was I the only person who really enjoyed, like, Peter and Al's relationship just as it was? And there were clearly, like, two like, rapidly approaching middle-aged professionals that had no plans on, like, having children, which, like, and then at the very end to completely upend that so that they could have, like, a baby named Neil, that's ridiculous. They should have just gotten another dog. They definitely should have gotten a dog named Neil. But, you know what? This is, like, the same, this is the mentalist problem all over again. TV producers goddamn love throwing in a baby in the series finale. I mean, like, and this is me saying it, right? Like, I fucking love babies. Like, I would cut lines of throwing in babies, like, and snort them with $100 bills if I could. But, like, there are certain places where it's not appropriate. And I just, like, did not feel like the White Collar series finale needed a baby. Yeah. Oh, did I mention, by the way, that, like, Lisbon isn't sure if she'll return to work because she's pregnant? Oh, sure, because, you know. She might just now become a stay-at-home mom, even though, like, her career is literally the most important thing in her life. That's gonna go real bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's gonna go real bad. This is why I'm like, don't put babies in this series finale. You can imply that, like, maybe they'll have kids, maybe they won't, but, like, that's a thing that we don't need to see. Like, leave that up to people's imaginations. It's also such a weird way to, like, button up the story. Like, if throughout the course of the series, like, children were a thing that people had talked about or wanted or whatever, fine. Maybe it makes a little more sense. But, like, I don't understand why people think, like, baby, it's the end. No, baby is, like, the beginning of, like, a lot of complication mess. And, I don't know, whatever. That's my own personal thought on this. Well, there's also the problem of, like, listen, I've read a lot of terrible romance novels where, like, you you knew that it wasn't over until somebody had produced an infant. (laughs) Until someone had, like, shoved a nine-pound ham out of their vagina. Like, essentially, they're, like... They destroyed the villain, they got married, they did it finally, and then it's like, and nine months later, here's your, like, bouncing baby girl or boy. Then be like, oh, that's, that's the end. That's how I know that this is over. I don't know. I got nothing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan. Um, but on that downer note, let's, uh, let's move on to Rex. And before we get into this week's Rex, I actually have a correction from last week when we talked about Naruto. Um, and specifically I'm a dummy and I wrecked the wrong Naruto fic by Pentapus. Like it's still the right author. I just like literally said the wrong name. I described the story dinner with the special assassination tactical squad, which is not recommended for admission, which is about Kakashi and is also about Pentapus, but is a different story, which is also excellent. So really what will happen is we'll go back and edit that page and put like another recommendation on there. Good. But thank you to Discluded among um, a number of other nons who pointed out like, Pro, you're drunk and high. Fix this. <laughs> That's just your love of Naruto overflowing. It's true. Like my chakras for Naruto just like spilled out of me. So. Good. Um, and this week, uh, I thought that it might be a good way to um, wrap up the series finales that I was, like, aware of by wrecking an alternative 
for the white collar series finale for you guys to read and also a story to honor the memory of Mr. Leonard Nimoy. So I have one Star Trek rec and I have one white collar. So my white collar recommendation is called Figure It Out, written by Light Gets In. It is about Neil Caffrey, who is so terribly smart and yet takes forever to figure out exactly what the Burks are offering up to him. It is really great. White Collar is one of those rarish fandoms where I genuinely love the threesome pairing and totally buy it. Um, Figure It Out is probably my favorite story in that whole fandom. And it's like how I will decide to like erase season five and just replace it with Figure It Out. Um, So that's my White Collar wreck. And my Star Trek wreck is probably one of my favorite Trek stories of all time. It's called Of Twin Stars and Other Eccentric Satellites by Winter Hill. And it's a story about Spock and Kirk and the Enterprise getting called to the new Vulcan colony um, to help Spock's wife with something. It's a really, really interesting story um, that looks a lot at the relationship that Spock and Pring have and the relationships that the Vulcans have with their new planet and identity. And it's really smart and everybody is really interesting and great in it, except for Stan, who sucks. Fuck Stan. Stan's um, the worst. Yeah. It's a, it, like, screw that guy. But that's okay because everything else in the story is tremendous. It's really plotty. It's really smart. Um, and I adore it. You should definitely check it out. Um, and MK, do you want to explain what, uh, why you don't have anything to show for this? Actually, while you were talking, I did come up with one rec, but after that, I'll explain my shame. Um, <laughs> so my one rec would also be for White Collar, and it's the vid Let's Misbehave by Chalkez, which is also yes. on 3 It's like the greatest fan vid that White Collar has ever produced. It's so perfect. It's 100% perfect. Anyways, before we started recording... <laughs> We were looking for Star Trek wrecks so that we could, like, honor the memory of Leonard Nimoy. And, um, it turns out that everything I have saved is inappropriate. <laughs> it's probably the best way to describe that, right? Like, inappropriate. I was like, um, this is the one where Kirk gets a tramp stamp, but it's actually really meaningful. And Prue was like, no. <laughs> You're not allowed to wreck that on the podcast. You can wreck that on the podcast. You cannot wreck that in honor of Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> like the tramp stamp is actually beautiful, girl. I just want you to rewind and listen to yourself make this argument. Have you read the story? No, because I don't read stories where the word tramp stamp is a major problem in it. You are missing out. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> we have to end this. We do have to end this. Um, and to whoever wrote the Tramp Stamp story, I'm sure it's awesome. It uh, is awesome. <laughs> I'm sure it's great. Just, just not, not what we can use in memory. It's just not suitable for this this week. Guys, thank you for listening. Um, you can find us during the week at Slash Report on Twitter or at slashreport.tumblr.com. You can find me at Often Imprudent and MK at Moonfluts on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye. You cannot wreck that. I know. That's that cannot be your, like, in honor of Leonard Nimoy's story. Leonard Nimoy.